piano tune written especially for me, Strange Fruit. shame is that people don't know uh, about it. Like those who came before him, ageless men without a name. To cross the southern border To a land that has no shame He'll take his sweat and blood And put food upon the tables While his own children starve 
Train made uh, that uh, recording uh, within a few months of the bombing of a church in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and four little girls were, were killed. So um, that was his reaction. After that, we had a, what has become an American classic. Far beyond just a tune or a song by Billie Holiday. Strange Fruit, the anti-lynching song. And we ended up with Hasta la Victoria. Uh, it's a documentary about the ongoing oppression of American workers in the fields, American and Mexican workers in our fields. This is Labor and Love, where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, where you work, you're probably on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of nature and a friend of labor. 
Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Of course, they don't want you to organize. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Your work makes them rich. Why would they? Why would they want you to ally yourself with anybody and make yourself strong? Okay, today we've we've got uh, like the aforementioned ones. We said I got a an interview with Davy D, who's a local hip hop historian and DJ rainmaker. We've got a song by Youth Brigade. We got the Labor Beat by for and about working. Giant victory for gay workers and by extension all of them. Um, Simone will sing for us. And then I want to find a song by the anti lynching movement is uh, very strong in this country. Who would have thunk it? The anti-lynching movement of against what had become common practice in the South and the Southwest. The lynching of black and brown people. In the uh, 1910 to 1919 it was called La Matanza in Texas. Texas Rangers. Remember the Texas Rangers? We used to watch a Texas Rangers TV show or listen to Joel McRae as a Texas Ranger on the radio. Well, they're known as Los Rinches, as the people who applied the racist measures of the state. So, what we're involved in is an anti-lynching movement. A little bit about that. The Tulsa riots. By now, you probably heard of the Tulsa riots. We'll go over that. See what that's about. Radio labor, labor news, and information from all over the world. You're only alone when you don't stand up. And if you don't stand up, you'll be counted as not standing up. As I said, radio labor. Um, no, China didn't steal our jobs. Corporate America gave them away. As I said, the Texas Rangers, Nina Simone, and we got Billy Holiday singing Strange Fruit. Okay. My name is The Bee, and this is Labor and Love. 
Bendoff was the one of the first, actually the first black union within the in the AFL-CIO, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and along with his, his associate uh, E.D. Nixon, who was later involved in the Montgomery bus boycott, and the father. CFO. <coughs> Let me begin to. <laughs> C.L. Dellums. Dellums' uh, son, Ron, became a congressman in this area for a long time and mayor of Oakland for a bit as well. So. Philip Randolph was a socialist who lived in New York, New York City, a writer, a newspaper man, journalist, and he set about organizing Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters for the, it was a segregated group. These were the people you see on the uh, movies about the train in the 30s and 40s, uh, the porters. A black, pretty much a black-only union. So this organizing was really hard. It was against the Pullman Company, the uh, vicious perpetrators of lots of violence during the 1893-94. Finally, in 1935. With the Roosevelt administration passing uh, laws that made it easy, or possible, I should say, to organize the union, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters finally settled their long strike against Pullman, their long protest. I don't believe it was a strike against Pullman. And Black Union within the AFL-CIO was, was made. Some other things you should know about Randolph was Randolph organized a march on Washington in 1941 in protest of the segregated armed forces. And Randolph and a group of other leaders uh, threatened to march on Washington and demand the integration of the armed forces. Roosevelt didn't want that to happen. Roosevelt didn't want to look bad. Right? So he, in some measure, integrated the... He, what he did was integrate the industrial production side of the war effort. I don't believe that the ar actual armed forces were uh, integrated until 1948 by Harry Truman. So, A. Philip Randolph, also active in the March on Washington when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his uh, address. I have a dream. 
just a real stalwart of the labor movement in Germany. And as I say, his his activity spawned, you know, other leaders, E. D. Nixon and and C. L. Dellums. Okay, let's see what we got now. We got Radio Labor. This is your World Labor Report. Every week we go through this, and when when we come back from Radio Labor, let's talk about a great victory for American workers this week. This is a Radio Labor World Report, recorded on Friday, June 19th, 2020. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, violations against labor rights increase around the world, the plight of domestic workers during the pandemic, the Labor Start report about union events, and... So often, we overlook the work and the significance of those who are not in, in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight... This is Radio Labor. Around the world, violations of labor rights have dramatically increased. A poll conducted by the International Trade Union Confederation, called the Global Rights Index, shows the number of violations at a seven-year high. To highlight the results of the poll, the ITUC conducted a webinar. ITUC General Secretary Sharon Burrow opened the webinar with an overview of the index results I'd like to start with a brief overview of the ITUC Global Rights Index. It's now in its seventh year. Countries are measured against 97 indicators grounded in standards of the fundamental rights at work. I hate to tell you, but things are going from bad to worst. And that's before we take into account the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. 85% of countries have violated the right to strike. 80% of countries have violated the right to to collectively bargain. And this year, the number of countries that impeded the registration of unions increased to 289 from 86 in 2019. We've also seen an increase in the countries which violate free speech. 39% of countries deny free speech and assembly, a rise from 26% of countries seven years ago. The Middle East and Africa are the worst regions in the world for working people, North Africa, I should say, for working people for the seventh year running. With the ongoing insecurity and conflict in Palestine, Syria, Yemen and Libya, coupled with the most regressive region for workers' representation and union rights. The Rights Index has picked up emerging trends from attacks on democracy. The latest trend this year is a rise in digital surveillance, where surveillance of trade union leaders in Hong Kong, Bangladesh, the Philippines and Chile have become national scandals. Another participant in the webinar about the ITUC's Global Rights Index was the General Secretary of the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions, Lee Chuk Yan. Mr. Lee has been a leader of the Hong Kong protests. Hong Kong is now in a very, very critical moment. At this moment when we are speaking, Actually, the National People's Congress today started to study the Hong Kong national security law. You know, this national security law is made in China, defined by China. And uh, this is a retaliation of the protest movement that we have over one year 
and actually uh, Hong Kong government has suppressed the protest movement movement over the, the over the past year. Now I think that they they feel that it's not enough to suppress uh, by the Hong Kong government. So the Communist Party is coming in, the Chinese Communist Party is coming in with the national security law. Apart from the pressure, the surveillance uh, on the Facebook, uh, there are of course a lot of uh, suppression on the on the uh, civil rights level. You know, uh, now there are already 9,000 people in Hong Kong arrested and 2,000 prosecuted. And I myself was under seven charges for four incidents. And uh, the, all the charges are the same. It's uh, organizing and uh, participation in unauthorized assembly. Uh, but of course, it's unauthorized because the police banned, banned any possibility of gathering. So. Uh, after they ban the gathering, we have to come out to uh, continue to uh, use our uh, constitutional right to uh, protest. And when we come out and uh, lead the uh, lead the marches, uh, we are now uh, arrested and uh, being prosecuted. So uh, we are now uh, I am now in the process of the trial. And uh, but apart from me, there's as I've said, you know, nine thousand people are already uh, arrested. And, and, and that part is the civil rights part. The second part is the uh, labor rights part. You know, uh, there's, uh, there's a new union movement now in Hong Kong, uh, together with the CTU affiliate. We are now trying to push for uh, more of a, a strike as a possibility of protest uh, during the movement. But when you push for a political strike, the problem with Hong Kong is we don't have the right to strike and no protection of the uh, uh, strikers. Uh, so now, as a very, ex a very famous example in Hong Kong, uh, the, mat the hospital authority uh, workers go, uh, went on strike under the, uh, uh, led by the union. But now the hospital authority, though we are all facing the COVID-19, they said that they want to look into uh, what they can do under the law against the striker. So they are now starting to intimidate uh, some of the striker and also said that, you know, uh, you are under review uh, as a personnel policy. So we do not know what will happen. The other thing that had, uh, there's also attack on the civil, uh, uh, on the civil servant, uh, saying that now uh, uh, some of civil servants want to come out to call for uh, action against national security uh, law. And then the government starts to say that, oh, uh, you have to show your loyalty to the government. And, and you are not, you cannot put, uh, participate in political activity against the government. So they want to, you know, sort of stifle uh, the possibility of any action uh, that taken by the uh, civil servant. And now they are also beginning attack on teachers because they thought the teachers also support the protest and they want to discipline those teachers uh, that support the protest. As our slogan in Hong Kong said, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. There are 16 million domestic workers in the world. Many of them are suffering severely because of the pandemic. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. Perhaps one of the hardest hit groups of workers affected by the pandemic is domestic workers. There are more than 60 million domestic workers in the world. About 11 million of these are migrant workers. They are represented at the world level by the International Domestic Workers Federation. The IDWS president is Myrtle Whitbuoy from South Africa. She spoke recently to a webinar held to discuss the plight of the world's domestic workers. She mentions Convention 189, 
which is an international law designed to protect domestic workers, devised by the UN's International Labour Organization. I think that the IDWF is facing the biggest challenge since our launch in 2013. We are facing domestic workers that is losing their jobs, thousands of domestic workers. We are facing undocumented workers that has got no access to social security or funding. We are facing unemployment fund that is not reaching to domestic workers. And we are facing employers that is threatening domestic workers with no work, no pay. We are finding many of our domestic workers locked out of workplaces, sitting on the streets. We are finding domestic workers that have got nowhere to go because they can't go back to their country. So at this moment, we are facing with how are we going to reach many of those workers? How are we going to let our governments listen to the plight of the workers? Poverty and hunger is facing the domestic workers. And also domestic workers' children that they have to go to school. Domestic workers' children doesn't have access to clothes and anything. So I think that we have to put our heads together of how are we going to come out of this crisis and how will we be able to do much more for domestic workers and how will we be able to reach out to the government to see that domestic workers have access to social funds, to unemployment funds and this is what we're actually striving for is to see many domestic workers offices are closing because domestic workers can't keep their offices open because there is no funding. You can learn more about the working conditions of domestic workers at idwfed.org. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. Here's a small sample of all of their hard work. Our top story sections included links to coverage of how and why Iranian workers are striking in the midst of the pandemic in that country and in the face of extreme state repression, and the shocking but not unexpected news from the International Trade Union Confederation that workers' rights are under an unprecedented global attack under cover of the pandemic. This week, the emerging trends in our news coverage are the effects not just of the pandemic, but of neoliberal and xenophobic government policies on migrant workers. The high rate of infection amongst Mexican migrant workers in Canada has the Mexican government seriously considering a ban on Canada as a destination for agricultural workers. Accommodations for migrant workers in Canada are so bad that large farms now rival food processing plants, which are also employers of migrant workers, as COVID-19 epicenters in Canada. Internal migrant workers in Pakistan are suffering from the loss of employment and the cost of returning to their family homes, all with no income replacement programs to assist them. Similar, though not as well-documented, crises are beginning to appear across much of Africa, and in Latin America, while there are some bright spots like Uruguay, workers elsewhere on that continent are facing the loss of employment with no or minimal income replacement programs. Some governments are refusing to act to impose workplace safety measures, leaving unions on their own in trying to force employers to modify work practices. 
For example, in Chile, mine workers are having to refuse to work just to force their employers to talk to their unions about workplace health and safety measures. Or, even worse, in countries like Nicaragua, the government has adopted a policy of letting the pandemic run its course and requires nothing of employers by way of workplace safety measures and acts against unions which press safety demands. A problem from the very start of the pandemic has been the lack of personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. The equipment crisis has followed COVID-19 as it is spread around the world. The latest crisis to come to a head is in Lesotho, where nurses have set a strike deadline and told the government there to either equip them properly or face a strike. Our current photo of the week is one of hundreds of union actions across Brazil that continue to demand the removal of the country's president as workers there die, directly as a result of his policy of denying the seriousness of the COVID-19 pandemic. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for online solidarity with Indian unions, which are facing a government committed to gutting the country's labor laws under cover of the COVID-19 pandemic. Look for details of this and our other campaigns on our website. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. So often we overlook the worth and the significance of those who are not in in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. Entertainers. This is for the plumbers and the painters, the pots and pans, scrubbers and the waiters, truckers and landscapers, the pavers, the physical instructors and trainers, the cabbies, the supers, the bouncers, the movers, the teachers, all the youth counselors and tutors, the cooks flipping hamburgers and sales account managers, the maids, the janitors, the realtors, the movers, whether you in the office or the mall selling Reeboks, a factory you're pushing cell phones out of kiosks, a service technician, a nurse, an electrician, a clerk, whether you work on research or a transmission. This is for my people with purpose and ambition. Firefighters and farmers, bank tellers and barbers, paramedics and artists up in tattoo parlors. All my entrepreneurs relying on solid partners. My bus drivers and couriers riding around in the city. Pizza boys surviving off by the hour deliveries. My caterers and dentists and gas station attendants. This is for everybody behind the counter and Timmy's and anyone dealing cars, construction and decent cars who come in with good intentions and end up leaving with scars. This one's for the moms and dads collecting trash or working two jobs. My People is a production of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. It was wrapped by Adam Vaughn. And that's it. Labor news you can't use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity. We will do 
Oh, shoot. This is Solidarity News on... Okay, we will, we will do... Oh, shoot. Maybe we'll do them both, I don't know. Hey, we're in the middle of a revolution Because I see The face of things to come Yes, I do Oh, your constitution Of all the evil it will have to end
free health care, dropping student debt, universal unemployment benefits, caring about the homeless? American politicians and pundits are suddenly taking all those things very seriously. Like, if you happen to be coming back from a 12-day silent meditation retreat with Jared Leto, you might think, wow, is Bernie president? Am I the Joker again? No, honey, it's a pandemic. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and yeah, this is where I pay rent. And though Bernie Sanders may not be president, today we're looking at six ways coronavirus is proving him right. Welcome to another season of News Broke. If you had told me back then that four years into the Trump administration, we would be filming under quarantine from our homes, I would have been like, yep, that checks out. Has he been impeached? Of course. What we're going through is so surreal and scary. And since everyone is stuck at home anyway, we also thought it was the perfect time to bring back Newsbroke and look at a number of aspects of this moment with a skeleton crew, uh, no animations, and my cat running camera. Good job, baby. She's an indoor. Coronavirus has rapidly done a number of things. Besides spread and take lives, it's also somehow made President Trump really jealous. It's almost like he's mad another younger, hotter pathogen has gone more viral than he has. It has also exposed deep structural problems in our healthcare system, our economy, and our political systems. Coronavirus is like a blacklight shining on our econo lodge of a country. The bed seems sturdy, but you do not want to see what's holding it together. There are problems that Bernie Sanders has been sounding the alarm on for decades, which are all now painfully on display, just like my bookshelf of Ikea boxes is painfully on display. I have limited closet space. So let's look at six ways that the coronavirus has shown that Bernie Sanders might be onto something. That guy should run for president one day. <laughs> the obvious first is healthcare. Coronavirus has hit the US when 30 million of us still don't have health insurance, and half a million of us go bankrupt every year just trying to pay for medical costs, even with insurance. Bernie Sanders has long advocated for a national health care system, Medicare for All, which covers all people with no out-of-pocket costs. It ends all premiums. It ends all co-payments. It ends the absurdity of deductibles. And that has been met from both Republicans and Democrats with that all-too-familiar question. You know the one. How are we going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for many of these things? They don't Pander. know who's going to pay for it. How are we going to pay for it? Doesn't show enough about how we're going to pay for it. Um, duh, the same way we pay for most healthcare expenses in this country. Go fund me. Enter COVID-19. Tens of thousands of Americans suddenly need rapid testing, hospital beds, and sometimes respirators. And the richest country in the world hasn't been able to provide them. Healthcare workers themselves are not only in short supply, but so is their basic protective gear, like face masks, to safely treat patients. And that's to say nothing of the magazine selection in hospital waiting rooms. It's just the same three issues of Highlights Magazine. I've already read The Dog Who Helps Save Whales. <laughs> Drivel. Our massively privatized system is clearly not designed to handle a national crisis like this, and that's dawning on everyone, which is why we're now hearing a strangely familiar tune from a far too familiar face. Earlier this week, I met with the leaders of health insurance industry who have agreed to waive all co-payments for coronavirus treatments 
extend insurance coverage to these treatments and to prevent surprise medical billing. Okay, but how are we gonna pay for it, right? Anyone? Weird. In fact, coronavirus is giving some corporate media pundits ideological whiplash. In the space of three weeks, I've gone from asking questions like, how do we pay for certain policies to retweeting tweets from the likes of Bernie Sanders and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez? Oh, Lady Chatterley, you naughty girl. <laughs> what a difference a doomsday makes. It's almost like when millions of people suddenly need urgent care and could infect us all, the money is there. Coronavirus is kind of like if poverty became contagious, suddenly everyone's like, a poor just sneezed on me. Oh God, oh my 401k is burning up. But just in case you thought the US has learned its healthcare lesson, rest assured, we haven't. Uh, in fact, what Trump said about COVID-19 treatment being covered, that's not actually true. Yes, Congress passed the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act, which did include free testing, but not treatment. That's why private health insurance companies aren't covering the cost of treatment, only the test, if you can get one. And at this point, health facilities are guarding them like bridge trolls. The test is free, but answer me these questions three. Patients are already getting a taste of how much it costs to survive coronavirus. For one Boston woman, it was almost $35,000. And her case isn't that unique. A new study by the Kaiser Family Foundation finds that the average cost of COVID-19 treatment for someone with employer insurance and without complications would be about $9,763. Someone whose treatment has complications may see bills about double that, over $20,000. Oh, and if you have insurance, all that out-of-network, in-network billing maze that so many of us know about, that's still in place. So it's a good thing that we have nothing but time in quarantine. Medical debt from surviving coronavirus will further strap Americans during what could be an economic depression as a result of the pandemic. Before this all happened, Bernie Sanders warned about the crippling cost of medical debt and called to drop all of it. That was in addition to his calls to drop $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. Now that millions are out of work, that radical idea of dropping debt isn't all that radical anymore. New York's Attorney General just suspended collections on both medical and student debt in response to the pandemic. Sure, it's only for 30 days, but that's just enough time to pack your bags and get a one-way flight to Costa Rica. They're cheap. Don't come back. Never return. Coronavirus has exposed just how little job security workers in this country have. Four in 10 hourly workers don't have paid sick leave. And overall, the less money you make, the less likely you are to have it. Back in 2015, Bernie was a co-sponsor of the Family and Medical Leave Insurance Bill and spoke some pretty prescient words. We have a situation where people in this country, by the millions, have no uh, guaranteed uh, sick leave. And especially in areas like the food industry, sick people are handling our food. And the reason for that is that uh, they do not have any paid sick leave. Yeah. Restaurant workers not having sick leave is truly the cruelest twist of consumerist capitalism. COVID or not, illnesses inevitably get passed to the customers. If you think about it, restaurant owners are basically outsourcing the diarrhea. And that's the real trickle-down economics.
In our current crisis, restaurant workers and other tipped workers, hourly wage earners, gig workers, domestic workers, and farm workers have all been hit the hardest. Shifts are disappearing, workers are being let go, and if they or their loved ones get sick, most of them can't take time off. Bernie has supported legislation for those workers in particular through his Workplace Democracy Plan, which among other things has sought protections for Uber and Lyft drivers, saying companies shouldn't be able to misclassify workers as independent contractors or label them as a supervisor, and calls for just cause legislation which would prohibit employers from firing workers for anything other than their performance on the job, which would mean a pandemic wouldn't be just cause to fire you, but not finishing your wet food and only eating the dry is she's fired and wouldn't you know it with COVID-19 Congress has now mandated paid sick and family leave as part of their emergency relief package so you can take up to two weeks off and you will be paid your full wage and you can take up to three months off and be paid two-thirds of your pay for people who work these gig jobs independent contractors they get a tax credit of the equivalent amount so that's a sea change. I mean, workers have been calling for this for years and we finally got it. Yeah, okay, let's temper the excitement because it actually only covers 48% of the workforce and also offers tax credits to companies for providing sick leave, which is like insane, right? Like why are we rewarding companies for doing the right thing? That's like making a priest a bishop because he didn't touch children. Some businesses have even taken it upon themselves to change their paid sick leave policies in light of coronavirus. And CEOs voluntarily changing their sick leave policies is the biggest indicator that they were probably trash to begin with. Like McDonald's, which usually only gives five days paid time off for hourly employees. So that's one day off for Christmas, one day off for New Year's, one day off when you get your hair stuck in the McFlurry mixer, and two days off to fix it! Of course, none of those concessions are coming from the goodness of these CEOs' hearts. In fact, another Bernie prophecy that's coming true is corporate greed. McDonald's, in fact, secretly lobbied the Trump administration to not expand paid sick leave benefits for workers any further. And man, would I love to have been a fly on the wall during that negotiation. Mr. President, it would be a shame if we had to discontinue the filet of fish. Stop right there. Who do you want me to kill? Then there's Bernie's line, you know the one about the millionaires, millionaires and, and billionaires. It can sometimes get tiresome, but you really start to see the depths of billionaires' greed in times like this. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, a man who made more money today than your entire bloodline, agreed to finally give workers two weeks paid sick leave for those infected with coronavirus, but not before he refused to shut down factories in Spain and Italy where five workers there were diagnosed with it. Four senators, including Bernie Sanders, wrote a letter to Bezos imploring him to consider covering the costs of coronavirus testing for his workers at fulfillment centers and at least give them enough break time to wash their hands, which apparently is a big ask considering workers there don't even have enough time to go to the bathroom. Let's remember, Bezos is a guy who makes the salary of an average Amazon employee every nine seconds, but they can't take breaks to pee? Man, there's already a class war. Workers are just losing it. Now everyone's talking about social distancing. Well, no one is more socially distant than Bernie Sanders. He doesn't even like wishing people a happy birthday. I'm not good at pleasantries. If you have your birthday, I'm not gonna call you up to congratulate you so you love me and you write nice things about me. I've been amazed at how many people respond to 
Happy birthday. Oh, Bernie, thanks so much for calling. You know, it works. It's just not my style. Bernie already treats every social situation like he could possibly contract COVID-19. Birthdays, New Year's, even Passover. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll come to the Seda as soon as Elijah shows up. He never shows up. We're all in this together. We've heard that from many people when talking about coronavirus, everyone from the head of the World Health Organization to Madonna in a bathtub full of rose petals to Vice President Mike Pence. We're all in this together. And by this, I mean the ark that I've been building in my yard, which will whisk us away from God's plague. Now I need two of every straight animal. Not you, flamingos. There's no question that we are all in this together when it comes to an international health crisis. But whether or not you survive it absolutely depends on your privilege and wealth. Because from our healthcare to our jobs to how we get our food, the US isn't designed for solidarity, collectivity, or the common good. It's designed for a few people to get rich, get excellent healthcare, or have job stability. The rest of us scrape by. And Bernie Sanders has spent his political career pointing that out. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us we have socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor and for other people. And when it comes to that concept of true solidarity, it's kind of been Bernie's guiding principle for years. What I believe in and what my spirituality is about is that we're all in this together. That I think it is not a good thing to believe that as human beings, we can turn our backs on the suffering of other people. Whatever you think about him, Bernie's ideas are speaking to our current crisis like never before. In part because what we're going through as a country is an acceleration of what's been happening for decades. It's a bull speed up. So it's up to us. Will the US come around to recognizing and fixing the basic flaws in these systems? And can we afford not to? You guys, this is Newsbroke back in quarantine. Like this video, share this video, subscribe, do all the things, tell all the people, and we will see you sooner than later. I mean, honestly, where am I going? Labor and Love Radio here. Working the day shift with you, Labor News. And um, after our break, we'll get into the good labor news of the week. And other things. There's lots of other things to talk about when you're talking about labor and people.
welcome David D. David D is a hip hop historian, journalist, DJ, community activist. He's been on the scene since 1977. He's been a word from David D, local DJ and hip hop historian. Hip hop corner. And he's also one of the hosts of Hard Knock Radio. And here's David D's take on what America is going through now. Well, we're at um, several intersections. First, we're coming out of, well, first, we're still in a pandemic. And we've had three months of people not working, not having any income, many families having to decide, do they pay for food or rent? $1,200 stimulus check only if you paid all your taxes and took care of your back thing. If you didn't do that, you didn't get any stimulus. And no sense of normalcy. Right. In the sense of being able to get up, have a routine that you could tap into the people advocating for the shelter in place are usually folks sitting on TV who make half a million dollars a year who don't know that there are thousands of families that live in one or two bedroom dwellings, have young adults or teenagers living there and. It's okay for a rainy weekend, but when you're talking about three months, it becomes a whole other ball of wax. And so the inequality that's been exposed is something that I don't think we really have accounted for, which says that people are angry, people are traumatized, people are sad, people are upended economically, emotionally. And we have this push to have people go out and make money for folks who caused this thing in the first place with their willful ignorance and refusal to make sure that there was infrastructure in place for people to um, get healed or get help if they caught this virus or even to acknowledge it. So that's going to be with us for a long time, you know, this upending economically. And it's exasperated now in many communities with the brutality of police who we are now seeing over and over again on camera to the point that I don't think it's accidental, but it's very deliberate and it's designed to uh, add more terror and confusion into a community. And it's being done with impunity because there, you know, it feels like people are saying, I'm not going to get caught. So you have that sort of situation that is developed. That's made people even angrier, but they're kind of stuck because up until maybe this weekend, a lot of people could, what are you going to do? You know, you can't go out, you can't demonstrate, you can't really be in community with folks. So all that is just, um, you know, has exasperated the situation over and over again. Then you're contrasting that with selective or unequal reaction to people coming together. So we almost have forgotten that two or three weeks ago, we saw thousands of people showing up at capitals all over the United States carrying uh, shotguns and talking about they, they want the economy to reopen and that they don't they want to get a haircut and all this sort of stuff. And what was coming across was an undercurrent of racism By that I mean it was quite obvious that these folks that were protesting weren't fighting to go back to work. They were fighting to open up their jobs so I can go work in, you know, unsafe conditions. And so I think that was kind of crazy, plus the the 
optics of seeing people threaten to shoot a governor in Michigan or hang an effigy of a governor in Kentucky or, you know, um, walk around with these uh, with the mega hats on and 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 storm a beach in Southern California. All these things that people saw and say, wow, we got tear gassed when we protested last year or the year before. And all that really came to a head with the killing of George Floyd, right? There have been other killings and other acts of brutality. Breonna Taylor comes to mind, uh, situations in New York where you saw the selective enforcement of um, who wears a mask and who doesn't, police pummeling people in Brooklyn, handing out masks to people in the in the village in New York, and, and all that sort of stuff. But the George Floyd thing brought people out. And here they are marching to a police station, demanding justice for something that was pretty egregious and pretty obvious. The the thing that that we're dealing with is watching this in in you know this inequality, where folks who came out to protest the the murder on tape on film of George Floyd were being repelled with tear gas and rifles and I mean uh, rubber bullets and the whole nine. Whereas just weeks before, you know, they were storming the Capitol in St. Paul, which is right up the road damn near from where George was killed, and uh, nothing was done, right? They, these were heroes exercising their American right to dissent. So we have a battle of have and have-nots politically, have and have-nots economically, have and have-nots socially. Who's accepted, who isn't, who is deemed uh, worthy of listening to their petitions and their their concerns, who is going to be rejected. So all that is just made for the type of um, volatile situation that we're seeing. And now we come to the complications around the the fires in the streets and the quote-unquote lootings at malls. And that's very layered is layered because I think that has happened before in the past. But it's it's layered because I haven't worked for three months. I don't have no money. And the Best Buy is getting looted. Why wouldn't I go in there and grab me a TV or whatever I can? Because I can actually make some money by selling it. I don't think people are buying it because they can't. But we also forget that people have ran up into grocery stores and probably got their first bag of groceries. You know, they ran into, you know, the Walmarts and the Walgreens and what have you and grabbing food and whatever they could um, to satisfy just immediate needs. And where it gets layered is like, if you're out on the streets, it ain't black people breaking these windows. It's white folks that have done it. So in some parts of the country... There's kind of like a friendly relationship. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna break these windows because I can. But if you all go in and do stuff, have at it. But in other places, it's designed to discredit the movement. So you're hearing the stories in Minneapolis about white supremacists dressing up or police officers who are undercover smashing windows and setting things into motion. So that becomes very complicated, and you have to dig deep and go, okay, what's going on in this city, and what is the relationship with, you know, political organizations and what have you? So in the Bay, where I'm at, I wouldn't say it's necessarily white supremacists coming into the Bay. 
you know, no proud boys or anybody like that coming. I just think there's folks who saw opportunity and understood that um, they have an angst with capitalism and there's exploitation and they're going to expose that by doing what they're doing. But that's very different than what's going on in a place like Milwaukee, where some of the things that are getting burnt up are mom and pop businesses, black owned businesses, all that. You didn't necessarily have that here. The one other complication that shows up here where I'm at, which adds to this layering, is that there are folks that are um, criminals, for real. So they're like, hey, in the middle of this, let me go rob all the weed spots, which has happened. Every single weed spot has happened. That wasn't looters or anything like that. Those were people that's like, this is what we're going to do. There are folks that have come in and said, let me settle a score with these folks. And, 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 and they knocked folks off or knocked off their businesses. So you have all these different things that are going on. All of it, at the end of the day, comes down to inequality and the immediate reaction to all this. The immediate reason why we have all this is because there was a refusal by that guy, the DA, forget his name, I think it's Freeman or whatever, to prosecute and and demand the arrest of the four police officers in Minneapolis. Imagine if he did that. Imagine if he said, this was a crime, you, you, and you. Two of those officers have lengthy records of police misconduct. One of them is being sued right now because of his egregious behavior. The other one has 18 and never been disciplined. Imagine if you said, y'all arrested, y'all be in charge. We would be, ha- I wouldn't even be on the show. We wouldn't have this, we'd have a different conversation right now. We would be talking about whether or not it's safe to, to reopen the country, what does normalcy look like. That's where we would be at. But the refusal to do that um, is, is, is the resu- is, has resulted in what we're seeing, which comes to the last point in this intersection where you ask where we're at. Folks got to make a decision as to what side they're on now. Are you rolling with the police and the things that they have come to represent, the protection of property, the protection of a ruling class, the protection of a 1%, the uh, suppression and oppression of people who are quote-unquote the have-nots? Are you rolling on their side? Because that's where the contradictions are coming. You know, are you going to rein them in? Are you going to punish them? Are you going to lead the charge to put laws in place to make sure that anybody who behaves that wears that badge um, in a way that is harmful to people is severely punished? And we're not seeing. Okay, Davy D there, um, talking with a great deal of authority and uh, incisive intellect. Always Davy D. So the question they ask is a simple one. And if we can find it here. That's Pete Seeger. Which side are you on?
Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Tell me, which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son. He'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Sing it! Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, workers, can you stand it? Tell me how you can Will you be a lousy scab Or will you be a man Which side are you on Which side are you on Tell me which side are you on Which side are you on
If I thought that police unions should be part of the labor movement, it's a hard question at this point. Uh, because police unions are often, usually, um, hotbeds of racism, applied racism. These are the guys who actually go out and beat people up and, and kill them and take advantage of them and uh, all those things. So the first thing would be to find people within the uh, police unions who are progressives, who have some idea of an alternative to kind of terrorist um, military force that the police have been, have become. It's become, you know, draw your gun and shoot. I mean, there's no alternative. And again, we have to understand that a cop doesn't want to end up being uh, a statistic. His wife and kids don't need to have him get shot and killed. But at the same time, Policing is not military oppression. Policeman is not supposed to be the person who penalizes the criminal. Policeman arrests the suspect. And the suspect is detained until some sort of arrangement has made for the, the person's trial. Now what's happening is cops are out there shooting people. And in this case, of course, of Floyd uh, torturing him in full view of everybody. Torturing him and killing him. So, I mean, what I've been thinking, what I've been noticing lately is that the this 
tremendous reaction to the, the torture and murder of George Floyd on the street. It was like one bridge too far. And then all of a sudden people realized, wait a minute, this is happening all the time. And all the time it's more or less the same. The cops say that the person threatened their lives. Well, they killed them. So, when what this whole crisis has done is lay bare policing practices all over the country. I mean all over the country. Historically, black and brown people have been subject to lynchings and extreme prejudice, especially when there's some kind of competition involved with a white person. Uh, the person could very easily charge the person of color with a crime. At any rate, one of the main, one of the, anniversaries that we passed uh, that of the Zoot Suit riots and this is just the tip of the iceberg of the violence against Mexicans and Mexican Americans in the southwest and west especially at the same time as African Americans in the south were being lynched at horrific numbers the NAACP had a, when it first began, had a sign outside that said, man was lynched today every time a lynching took place in the South. But this has been American policing. And this is about the Zoot Suit riots of 1942, I believe. 43, maybe. In the 1940s, Los Angeles was home to one of the largest Mexican-American populations in the U.S. At the time, Mexican-Americans faced constant prejudice. During this new era, racist stereotypes held by many Euro-Americans represented Mexican-American zoot suiters as the ultimate criminals of Los Angeles. During the 40s, Mexican-American youth started to wear zoot suits, an outfit popular among black swing musicians. These youth, who identified as zoot suiters, also known as pachucos, spoke a hybrid language called galo and wore extravagant oversized suits with broad shoulders, a cinched waist, and tapered ankles. The pachuco symbolized the birth of a new generation of Mexican-American working-class youth who rejected acceptable teenage behavior. As World War II began, the U.S. government placed many restrictions on its citizens. Parents of working-class families were called to work longer hours to support the war effort. Mexican zoot suiters took advantage of this time without parental supervision by socializing in dance halls late into the night. Zoot suiters were stereotypically criminalized due to the stigma attached to the zoot suit, which symbolized misbehaving teens violating curfew and delinquency. These racist stereotypes about zoot suiters became mainstream after the Sleepy Lagoon case of 1942. In this trial, 17 Mexican youth were indicted for the murder of one man. Because of this incident, many Euro-Americans believed that Mexican-American youth were deviant threats to traditional American society. The hatred fueled by the trial resulted in the zoot suit riots of the 1940s. These riots were repeated vicious attacks on Mexican youth by LA-based soldiers. 
Zoot suiters protected their identities in neighborhoods as servicemen defended their racialized American ideals related to the war effort. During World War II, the U.S. asked citizens to support the war effort by conserving luxury goods. In 1942, the Wartime Production Board placed a restriction on manufactured fabric, attempting to stop Pachucos from buying their zoot suits. In response, Pachucos wore their zoot suits as an act of defiance and were considered unpatriotic for not following the restriction. The visible resistance of the zoot suit pushed soldiers to act upon their belief of us, the Brotherhood of American Military Men, and them. Mexican youth in their communities who are believed to be un-American criminals. Altercations between soldiers and Mexican zoot suitors spurred further racial conflict. On the night of June 3, 1943, a group of soldiers were allegedly attacked by a group of zoot suitors. In response, over 200 angry American soldiers organized in downtown Los Angeles with weapons. Fueled by racism, they targeted, beat, and stripped groups of young Mexican boys wearing zoot suits. During the following days, servicemen were gaining in numbers and infiltrating Mexican communities, especially in East Los Angeles. The servicemen used the military practice of search and destroy to target Mexican zoot suitors. As Los Angeles resembled a war zone, Euro-American civilians who believed Mexican youth curbed the war effort joined the riots on the side of the U.S. servicemen. Moreover, LA police were either passive or joined the riots. The only real intervention by LAPD was the unjust attainment of over 500 Mexican youth. The media was a driving force of the pervasive racist attitudes toward Mexican zoot suitors and Mexican communities during the riots. Media described the riots as a cleansing of Los Angeles, equating Mexican-American criminality with zoot suitors. During the riot, the media blamed Mexican youth and communities while excusing soldiers from their brutality. The media framed Mexican-American zoot suitors and their communities as enemies of the U.S. Internationally, the Mexican government was outspoken during the zoot suit riots and highlighted its effects on U.S.-Mexico relations. The Mexican government was concerned for the safety of Mexican migrant laborers entering the United States. They called for action as they were aware that the zoot suit riots were fueled by a racist hatred of Mexican people. Due to this international pressure, the U.S. federal government pushed officials to end the riots by controlling the Los Angeles Navy bases and forcing press to stop negatively portraying Mexican-Americans. The Zoot Suit riots officially ended on June 8, 1943. Los Angeles was thrusted into a fierce racial divide. A citizens' committee was ordered by the Mexican ambassador to investigate the cause of the riots and concluded that it was racism. In addition, Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady of the U.S. at the time, also released a statement in the L.A. Times to condemn the Zoot Suit riots as a race issue. Despite public figures condemning that racism drove the Zoot Suit riots, it did little to change misconceptions regarding Zoot Suiters, Mexican youth, and Mexican communities. Okay, the Zoot Suit riots spasms of American racism. Okay, let's look at some on our labor beat. Okay. William Kerrigan, this is uh, part of a 
the show of Sonali, Rising Up with Sonali. And Kerrigan talks about Americans lynching Mexicans in his book, uh, Forgotten Dead. Okay. Check also NewYorkTimes.com. Lynch mobs kill Latinos across the West. The fight to remember them is just starting. Arlinda Valencia was at a funeral when an uncle told her a bewildering family secret. An Anglo lynch mob had killed her great-grandfather. Mixture of grief and shock overwhelmed me since this was the first I'd heard of it. Ms. Valencia is the leader of a teacher's union in El Paso. The more I looked into it, the more stunned I was at how many Mexicans were lynched in this country. One of the grimmest campaigns of racist terror in the American West. The lynching of thousands of men, women, and children of Mexican descent from the mid-19th century well into the 20th. Some victims were burned alive, like Antonio Rodriguez, a migrant worker who was hauled from a jail in Rock Springs, Texas, tied to a tree and set ablaze in 1910. Other mobs hanged, whipped, or shot Mexicans, many of whom were American citizens, sometimes drawing crowds in the thousands. Lynchings have long been associated with violence against African Americans in the American South. And these atrocities are remembered at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Alabama. Lynchings of Hispanics have faded into history less attention. Often they have been portrayed as attempts to exercise justice on behalf of white settlers protecting their livestock or claims to land. Professor Munoz, Monica Munoz Martinez says, but despite the unwillingness to recognize these lynchings as a tragedy, Momentum is finally building to finally reckon with these events and the events that took place in the American South. All of a sudden we see it. The, the cover has been taken away. We see it for what it is. Mao is saying that political power comes out of the barrel of a gun. And if you've got the gun, you're going to... Uh, Impose your version of society on the less fortunate or the outgroups. Anyway, check this out. It's New York Times. Lynch mobs kill Latinos across the West. No, China didn't steal our jobs. Corporate America gave them away. This is part of the Trump campaign now to build up a, a boogeyman in, in China and hammer on the boogeyman and hammer on Biden, who's quote-unquote soft. President Trump loves to blame China for the job losses that have devastated American workers under globalization. But the truth is that Trump is blaming the wrong party. 
Trump's reckless trade war against China is misguided and amounts to a colossal charade that will not solve the actual problem. This is an alternate. Yes, it's true that numerous American manufacturing jobs have been shipped overseas to China, thereby leaving American workers and jobless and suffering. This is something that Steve Bannon, um, Trump's right-hand man, said with a lot of accuracy. Globalization has hollowed out the American working class and all the jobs have been sent outside of the country. But China did not steal these jobs. No, these jobs were given to China. It was all legal and legitimate. China merely accepted the gift. Accepting these jobs was a perfectly rational course of action. They would like to build manufacturing plots, the capitalists said, in China and hire droves of your unemployed to work there. What was China supposed to do? true that these new jobs in China are intended to displace American workers, but does that concern belong to China? No, China is being a capitalist. They're taking advantage of a situation. Does China have the responsibility to care for the well-being of American workers? Of course not. Texas Rangers murdered hundreds of Mexicans on the border. That's from the Daily Mail. Trump planned his rally in Tulsa. How could he do that? How could he plan it in Tulsa? Tulsa is the scene of the worst of the race riots in recent history where black and whites took it upon themselves to go down to the black neighborhood in Tulsa and call Greenwood and burn it down as they did with Chinese, as they did with Mexicans. That's what they did. And Mr. Trump wanted to have his rally on the 19th of June, which is Juneteenth, which is the day that slaves in Texas found out that the Civil War was over and that they were free. Actually, some were never told by their quote-unquote owners that there had been a law passed and the war to destroy slavery had been won. They didn't learn until 1867 that they were no longer slaves. Anyway, day Juneteenth, Mr. Trump wants to have a rally in Tulsa. Finally, he kind of backed off. He said he wouldn't do it on the 19th. He'll do it today. So let's keep our eye on that. Um, that could become a very hot situation. We've got 
25,000 pro-Trump people who are going to crowd themselves into a, an indoor tent, an indoor hall, where they can all give each other the COVID-19. Hope that doesn't happen. They had to sign a paper, a release, releasing Mr. Trump and his party from any any legal exposure uh, arising from this concert. Come on to my concert. I want you to be here. Masks are men- not mandatory. A hot situation. Anyway, this is the B. And it's about time for us to go. As always, I've got uh, more. As always, I've got more material than I know what to do with. Let's just boil it down to take care of one another, help each other out through these hard times. In very real terms, we are all we have. Wear your mask and fight the fascists. This is the B. One person gets a dollar that they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is where you work, on the menu and never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor of course they don't want you to have a union or organize in any way your work makes them rich
of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Venice. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend. You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes 
every Monday from 6 to 8. That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Tired of paying too much for your internet? Contracts and hidden fees got you down? Tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet? Get Monkey Brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data, bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, and 100% net neutral. Residential internet for only $35 a month, business packages starting at $75 a month. Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today. Hey everybody, listen to the weekly review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of <laughs> YouTube with uh, Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym LWAFLMOYT. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah, LWAFLMOYT. Yeah, That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. 5% yeah, right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh, uh, uh, let's watch full-length full movie. Oh, let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See, ya. See you next month.
listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go san francisco mutiny radio san francisco mutiny radio why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm Streaming live the station. MutinyRadio.fm District of the Mission. MutinyRadio.fm MutinyRadio.fm Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco MutinyRadio.fm Hit the donate button, stream them live. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every 